Before we start this episode, I just wanted to make you aware that for a few seconds, approximately at minute 17 and at minute 36, the audio is slightly distorted. Really sorry about that, and I hope it doesn't interfere with your enjoyment of my chat with our lovely guest. Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Jonathan Sakia. For this week's episode, I'm joined by Mr. Ricky Bogle, consultant hepatobiliary surgeon at the Royal Marsden Hospital here in London. Today, we'll be discussing Ricky's impressive clinical and academic career. Ricky completed undergraduate medical training at the University of Leicester in 2002 with an intercalated Bachelor of Science degree awarded with honours. He subsequently chose to pursue a career in surgery, accepting a training post in the West Midlands. Between 2008 and 2011, after working as a specialist registrar for two years, Ricky took a position as a Wellcome Trust Research Fellow at the University of Birmingham and completed his PhD on hepatic ischemia reperfusion injury and following this, he worked as a specialist registrar in several hospitals, also in the West Midlands. During this time, he trained in liver transplant and hepatopancreaticobiliary surgery. That's the liver, pancreas, and associated tubes for our non-medical listeners uh, at the Birmingham Liver Transplant Unit. And between 2014 and 17, he also held a National Institute for Health and Care Research Clinical Lectureship at the University of Birmingham Center for Liver Research. It's quite a mouthful. Following completion of training, Ricky completed a two-year senior hepatobiliary fellowship at the liver unit in Birmingham, where he focused on minimally invasive and oncology surgery before taking on his current position at Britain's world-famous Royal Marsden Hospital. He's also a senior lecturer at the Institute for Cancer Research here in the UK. His extensive research has led to over 80 peer-reviewed articles, several book chapters, and countless abstracts, and has earned him multiple awards. In addition, Mr. Bogle is a member of several medical professional societies, on the editorial boards of medical journals, reviews for others, and is a dedicated educator, serving as mentor and supervisor for emerging medical scientists, as well as teaching medical students and surgeons in training. So Ricky's clearly passionate about education and improving outcomes for patients with cancer, and he's given multiple invited lectures around the world. Ricky was born and brought up in the black country area of Britain. You'll hear it in his accent. That's sort of in the center around Wolverhampton, Dudley and the like, places where the, the coal seams come to the surface. The name apparently comes from the 1840s and refers to the air pollution and heavy soot generated by the Industrial Revolution. Today, however, the countryside is clean and rather lovely, and Ricky still lives there despite working in London. Outside of work, he's a massive football fan supporting Manchester United, so presumably he's suffering a bit this year. I'm a Tottenham Hotspur supporter, so I suffer every year. He also played football from age nine to 40, and for 25 of those years for his team, Wondervolts FC. We're absolutely delighted to host Ricky today and to have the opportunity to discuss his career and research further. So welcome to the podcast, Mr. Ricky Bogle. Thanks, Jonathan. Very nice to be here. So 
I, and again, you're going to hear his accent, which always cracks me up. One of my dear friends from medical school is from Dudley and speaks the same way. And it always makes me smile. So, Ricky, I love origin stories. What took you into medicine? You mentioned your mum to me, surgery, and specifically hepatopancreatico biliary or HPV surgery. And who were the folks who were your heroes apart from your mum? <laughs> um, so, yeah, you're quite right, uh, Jonathan. I wasn't. I never really considered a, a career in, in medicine. Um, I was always heavily, heavily into football. Uh, but when I was 16, I got quite a nasty tackle and ruptured my cruciates in my, uh, in my left knee. And then my mum sat me down and said, look, don't you think you should do something that's going to be a bit more stable? And she kind of pushed me into, uh, into medicine. Um, I didn't really have a, I mean, if I was being honest, I didn't really have a great passion for it at that time. But uh, as I went through medical school at Leicester, it really grew on me. And I think what really pushed me towards surgery was my first house officer jobs, as they were in those days, was at the Leicester Royal Infirmary on the uh, on the liver unit. So I was working for Mr. Robertson and Mr. Lloyd at that time. And I really, really liked liver surgery. And I thought, maybe this is something uh, something I can do in the future. And then I kind of I kind of parked the interest in liver surgery for a bit while I trained as an SHO. I was very lucky to work for a surgeon at Worcester, a vascular surgeon, Mr. Naimichi, who really kind of he kind of he, he really cemented my, uh, my my thoughts of I'm definitely going to do surgery. And then when I got my training number, I worked in Stoke again on the liver units there with uh, Mr. Deakin, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. He sort of said to me, he goes, yeah, he goes, I think you could do this. I think you can train in liver surgery. So why don't you go and speak to the uh, liver unit in Birmingham? So I, I just went on the off chance. So I think on a weekday after I finished the shift, and I went to speak to Professor Merza. And he kind of, I mean, to be fair, he's been my mentor the whole way through from when I was sort of for the last 15, 16 years. I think quite a bit of what I've learned about liver surgery, pancreatic surgery is all sort of stemmed from him, really. And then he, he very kindly took me under his wing and I was, uh, I trained under him for, for the best part of 15 years. Came across a lot of sort of really, really top-end surgeons at Birmingham. Uh, Professor Moisen and uh, sort of um, Mr. Pereira at Birmingham. They're all, they all great surgeons and I was really lucky to work with them, picked up the techniques from them. And then I was lucky enough work to work in Coventry as well, where they've got a liver unit as well. I worked for Mr. Lamb, Mr. Khan there and sort of all of them kind of really... Uh, really cemented my drive to be a liver pancreatic surgeon. I've, I'm, you know, it's probably not a surprise to you, Jonathan, but I've, quite a bit of my time when I was younger, I spent more time with them than with my family. So they're, they're all guys I still look, still look up to, still phone them up for if I need advice. Yeah, it was really, really good training with them. I don't know if you'll uh, know the name or if you ever came across him, but one of the guys I trained with unfortunately just passed away. Um, Les Blumgart, uh, who was at the Royal Postgraduate Medical School when I was a registrar and senior registrar, had a massive, massive personality. Did did you ever meet Les? I saw one. I saw a couple of his lectures when I was went to various conferences, but never, unfortunately, never had the chance to actually meet him. Yeah, he was um, a v technically very good uh, surgeon, a very good scientist, and a mercurial personality. He had a massive personality. And, you know, he was very good with a carrot and the stick. You know, I think he fired me seven or eight times. <laughs> and then the yeah. next day was, you know, giving you a couple. He was a lovely, lovely man. And I, I, I'm sitting here smiling because I love hearing people recount 
than the names of the, the folks who shape them, not just as clinicians, as surgeons, but as human beings. And I certainly learned a lot about how to behave from my mentors, again, not just to patients and colleagues. Uh, in fact, I'm going to throw something at you and then I want you to come back at me with, you know, something pithy that someone once said to you. My very first day as a house officer, Sir Robert Shields told me and the other house officer, he asked us, who are the two most important people in the hospital? And I said, well, you, sir, and the chief of medicine. And he called me a brown noser. And he said, no, the gentleman who operates the barrier at the car park, because, you know, if you piss him off, you're going to be parking a long way away. And the woman who operates the switchboard. And he was, you know, I used to, when I was on call, I would pop into the switchboard and play around with the, you know, I'd, I'd sit there and I'd take calls and join things together on the switchboard. So have you got any sort of like life lessons that you learned from your mentors along the way? During my training, and I saw a lot of a lot of very experienced surgeons lose their lose their call under certain circumstances. And I always remember Preston Mercer saying to me, sort of when I was part way through my registrar training, he said, "If you if you're the operating surgeon, if you lose your call, everybody around you is going to lose their call as well, and you'll just have ensuing chaos." He said, "Whatever happens, you've got to make sure you remain level-headed and cool, no matter." what the situation is because if you lose it everybody around it will lose it and it's it's words kind of have stayed with me the whole way through every time i'm about to uh, i'm about to do something let an expedient or do something so i always remember those words just automatically come back into my head and saying no keep the call you'll get yourself out of this keep the team with you keep everybody with you and you'll be okay it's one of the things that stayed with me the whole way through sage advice indeed ricky so I'm a big fan of gaining international perspectives and fostering collaborations around the world. And I noted that during your training, you spent time as a visiting scientist at the Mayo Clinic in the frozen tundra of Minneapolis and at the University of Heidelberg. What, what took you to both of those very fabulous institutions and what did you learn from them, both in terms of medical science and, again, life more broadly? When I was getting towards the end of my training, um, uh, Jonathan, a lot of the... A lot of the surgeons, senior surgeons said, look, they said to be a complete rounded surgeon, you really need to go to other big units or the premier units and see how they do things, see if they do things differently to the way you've been, you've been taught to do them. And you'll pick up new techniques, you'll pick up different ways of doing things. So that was kind of the, the sort of the green light for me to think, yeah, maybe I should, maybe I should travel, maybe I should go elsewhere. And as you were saying, I was a, I was a uh, clinical lecturer at the Bir at Birmingham University at the time. So I kind of took the opportunity to combine my research interests and my clinical interests. And an opportunity came up to visit the Mayo Clinic uh, via my, one of my PhD supervisors, Professor Adams at Birmingham. So I took up the opportunity and uh, I, went, I went, initially went to the Mayo Clinic. I was in the... Um, in the labs there looking looking at research into cholangiocarcinoma which is a, a type of uh, cancer that can develop in the liver or in the bile tubes and they were they were or they still are a, a, a world leading institution into looking at the mechanisms that that drive that cancer so part of the time i was in professor gauze's lab and then part of the time i was i was in the uh, transplant unit at the mayo uh, it was it, it was it was really fascinating because they do they do do things very you know very differently to the way i'd seen things done in, in in birmingham i mean the research side was very different we could cast our net pretty widely to look at different research questions different areas that, that sort of piqued our interest at the mail it was just kind of 
each person was focused on one area and one area only and they just spent day in day out you're just trying to answer that one research question which i found it had its advantages had its disadvantages but it was a different way of of seeing people doing in similar work to what that i was doing in birmingham and then sort of on the clinical side it was very different in terms of the liver transplant program there was very different to the way it was in birmingham in the sense that the types of donors or the way they got procured the organs was very different to the way i'd been trained to do it in birmingham so we in birmingham we had a big we had a program where we were using a lot more what are termed donation after cardiac death donors and they didn't really like those kind of donors in the in in the states they said you know we 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 try not to use these donors because we just feel that the longer term outcomes for these patients aren't as good so it was it was it was really it was really interesting to see the the differences in in management of patients i mean the one thing that struck me with the mail was i got off at the airport i was driving and there was nothing and then suddenly you get to this mass expanse of a research facility a massive hospital and then there's nothing again for miles so it was, it was quite it was quite a an odd setting coming from sort of birmingham where everything was kind of you know everything was built up it was a big urban area i mean the hospital and the research complex was massive but for miles and miles around there's pretty much nothing else around it but it was very, it was very very cosmopolitan people from all over the world patients coming in from all over the world i think in the time i was in in the um, in the transplant unit there were people flying in from all over the states people flying in from canada central america as far as long as sort of southeast asia and primarily because Mayo is one of the few places in the world that carry out transplant for cholangiocarcinoma so they've got a, a wealth of expertise probably the only center in the world that's got very good outcomes for this type of trans for, for, for transplant for this particular indication so it was again it was interesting to see how they manage these patients and how how their systems designed to kind of help these patients to uh, to get the best possible outcomes so yeah it was a, it was a really interesting experience I, I must admit the beers they were very good as well I spent a few few evenings in the tap house which is apparently the best uh, bar around uh, Rochester so that was great it was very nice well I, I have to tell you having lived in America for many years and uh, quite a few years before you were there um, until craft breweries took off in America the beer was bloody awful <laughs> uh, but the food in hospitals I have to say um, you know I had the privilege of operating all over America and I have to say the food in American hospitals for the staff um, was really very, very good, much better than NHS hospitals, I have to say. So, Ricky, you, um, actually, just briefly tell us about Heidelberg. What took you there? But again, very different from the United States um, and Britain. I really wanted to go to uh, Heidelberg, really, for the, for the, for the experience in pancreatic uh, surgery, uh, Jonathan. So it's, I mean, re globally, Heidelberg is probably now considered very much a mecca for pancreatic surgery. Uh, they probably do the greatest number of pancreatic operations globally. Um, and again, I kind of allied it again to my research interests. Um, so I spent time in the, uh, in the German Cancer uh, Research Center there in, in Professor Augenstein's lab, um, where they developed particular models to look at how liver cancer develops. So there were techniques I picked up there and brought back to Birmingham. And then I spent an equal amount of time in um, Professor Buchler's unit, who's the head of the pancreatic cancer unit. So I really wanted to go and see how far can you push pancreatic 
surgery for cancer patients. It was interesting to see because they really, really pushed the envelope. I mean, they were doing pancreatic resections where they were doing simultaneous resections of major blood vessels, simultaneous resections of parts of the liver. I saw two operations there where they took out kidneys as well as the pancreatic cancer, which were things I hadn't seen before and things I hadn't sort of, I'd read about them, but never seen them in action. So it was really, uh, it was really enlightening to see that. And the kind of things I saw that, are, that I've that brought into my own practice now, so they're things that I'm, I'm quite willing to do at the Royal Master now because I've seen them done, how they're done, what you, what, what you need to follow after you've done it with the patients. And again, very different environment. I mean, Heidelberg's beautiful. Uh, the castle was really nice. I took a walk up there quite a few times while I was there. Obviously, the German the German beer goes without saying. It was fantastic. it was fantastic. Yeah, you'll get no argument for me on that one. So, Nikki, you're you're a very accomplished and busy fellow. Being a consultant surgeon is a full time job, and I I know how it can take over your life. But you're also an educator, a scientist, an academic, participate in other leadership roles. What most floats your boat, and how do you manage all the various demands on your time? And your brain. You're quite right, John. It is, it is busy. But I think the one, the one advantage is that everything that I, that I kind of do day in, day out is all focused liver and pancreatic cancer. So although it sounds a lot, and, and, on, and on some occasions it is, all the operating that I do, all the teaching that I do, all the educational things that I'm involved in are all focused on, on parabillary cancers. It doesn't fear the guy practice a kick you know kicks ten thousand times fears the guy that's practiced one kick ten thousand times it's kind of similar situation you know i'm doing the same thing day in day out so you get you do get better at it you you improve and you are essentially focused on a on a big area but a very focused area day in day out it's very manageable uh, and most of all it's very enjoyable you know it was an obligatory question because lay people will sometimes say well you know you're doing how can you be a surgeon if you're doing research and you know i think you've you've answered it eloquently it's it's coming at the same problem from from different perspectives you can't choose the research projects if they're not focused on you know a clinically meaningful result yeah yeah it's 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 important to be well-rounded so you've been multiply honored ricky but i want to focus on one that i saw reviewing your cv James Syme was a, a leading 19th century surgeon who also mentored Joseph Lister. The Royal College of Surgeons established an award in his honor for high quality thesis work, which you won. So your research has been pretty wide ranging. What's the piece of work you've done that you're most proud of? That's a, that's a good, that's an interesting question, uh, John. I think probably of all the things that I've been involved in, probably the... The basic science research that I did um, when I started at the University of Birmingham is probably the one that I think I'm most proud of because probably it's the one that's had the most impact. So when, when, I, when I first went there uh, to do my PhD, we'd heard about, or there were mutterings at the time of machine perfusion for donor livers, but we didn't really understand how this would work and what kind of effects it would have on liver cells at the kind of the cellular level. And as you, as you kind of alluded to in, in the introduction, one of the big problems with transplant in general, whether it's liver transplant or 
heart transplants or kidney transplants is this phenomenon of ischemic reperfusion injury. So we know that when we take the organ out of a donor patient, there is a period of time where the organ will have no oxygen um, and that will damage the organ. And then when you re-plumb the organ back into the recipient patient, paradoxically re-establishing the blood flow to the organ can then induce further damage to the organ. Um, we knew that you know, it's, it's been known for a very long time, since the early 80s, that this is a, you know, a clinical phenomenon. There wasn't really an understanding of how this actually worked on human cells and how it worked, how it would work on the context of machine perfusion. So I, I, decided, to take, I decided to take the kind of problem on and, and try and work out what it actually does. So a lot of the work that I did on isolated liver cells at the University of Birmingham was the, was the work that kind of laid the foundations for the, for the, the amazing work that the, the, the transplant team uh, at Birmingham have done since with establishing machine perfusion as a clinical standard for liver, uh, for liver transplantation. So if I kind of think back to sort of 2006, seven when I first started, I am proud of that because that kind of laid groundwork and the, and, and the foundation stones for the clinical work that came afterwards and because we understood the cellular processes better we were then able to sort of translate that work into clinical practice and it's had a meaningful and a very good result for patients who who undergo liver transplantation and and it's it's helped uh, optimize results for otherwise marginal uh, human donor livers is that right yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, begun to understand more and more about how perfusing livers with machines can improve their overall function, and how we how we can judge whether these organs are likely to work if they're uh, implanted, or are they not likely to work. So, the 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 research questions have got more and more refined as sort of the as the sort of the last five six years have gone on because we've just been able to understand. The whole process much much better and yeah it's very fair to say that organs that would have been declined and not being used five six years ago are now you know, regularly routinely used for patients um, and that ultimately improves the number of patients we're able to transplant and improves the outcome quality of life for these patients who receive these organs because it's still and correct me if i'm wrong but availability of donor organs is still a problem yeah, it's, it's 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 historically been a problem, uh, Jonathan. It still remains a problem. So we we do know that about twenty percent of patients who are waiting awaiting a liver transplant who are on the liver transplant waiting list will unfortunately die without receiving a transplant. Which obviously everybody's working hammer and tongs to try and reduce that number. There still remains a significant number of organs that are retrieved for transplantation that are ultimately discarded. So it's somewhere in the region of about 150 to 170 organs a year will will be discarded, and a lot a lot of that is because the organs are felt to be suboptimal or they're felt to be not usable usually because it's felt that the organs are too fatty or the liver's too fatty the problem with that is if the, the fattier a liver is the more likely you are to develop this phenomenon of ischemia reperfusion injury and the, and the chances of the organ not working or not working as well after the transplant is greater but that is some that is a an area which the machine is helping us now because we can put these subjectively fatty livers onto the machine and they can actually reduce the amount of fat within the liver whilst it's being perfused. Some of the work that we did at Birmingham University, we were able to add in pharmacological agents 
into the into the system that actually got rid of more fat from the organ meaning that you could make sure that the organ was working and was less fatty before you implanted it into a patient so you know hopefully as sort of the next sort of five six years goes on we're able to then we're able to take more of these organs that are deemed fatty but then sort of reconditioning is probably too strong a term but we can we can optimize them much better so that they are being able to use clinically it's wonderful well continuing on from that nash non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or fatty liver disease is is growing in prevalence uh, seemingly and i've got two questions for you on that topic first talk to us about increasing awareness of the disease its cause and importance and second with more obese populations one gets presented with a fatty donor liver which you've already referenced tell us a little bit about uh, defatting organs which i'm fascinated by as you say jonathan the level of obesity now is increasing i mean i think i think the latest figures i read was something like 13 percent of people in the western in the western world are now clinically obese and that does pose a problem on many fronts in sort of liver and pancreatic surgery so clearly with transplant it's a big problem because fatty livers are more problematic in terms of the injuries they can sustain after the uh after the after transplantation so we do we do use this very loose term of steatosis meaning that the liver is is you know it's the medical term for saying a liver is fatty and we can grade them sort of by eyeballing the liver into sort of mild moderate and severe and sort of as you get more towards the severe end of the spectrum the more likely it is that the organs are going to sustain greater damage after the transplant so i was involved in the group that sort of did a seminal trial at Birmingham where it was funded by the Wellcome Trust. Express aim of that study was to look at whether if we took these donors that were severely fatty, could we use the machine to defat the livers and then use them for clinical transplantation? Um, and, and in short, the answer is yes, we could. So we, we took these organs that had been declined by all transplant centers in, in the UK so essentially, outside of this trial, they would have then been declined and would not have been used any further for any clinical treatment. But we brought them back to Birmingham and they were put on the machine. And then we sort of monitored their, their fat level during the course of the machine perfusion, ran from about eight hours to 12 hours. And we found that sub, not subjectively, but objectively, we were, having, we, we were seeing that these organs were working and they contained less fat. So we were able to use these organs for, for transplantation. And I think ultimately 23 patients got a transplant through the system that ordinarily would not have got a transplant. So defatting is a very achievable goal with the machine. We also face this problem um, in sort of cancer surgery for liver and pancreas as well, because if the patients are obese or, or the patients have a high BMI, it does pose significant problems for liver cancer surgery and pancreatic cancer surgery. It, we norm, when, when we're carrying out liver surgery, we always have to leave a certain amount of liver behind after an operation to ensure that the patient's got enough, sort of enough liver volume to sustain them through the sort of immediate phase after liver surgery. So in, in general terms, um, Jonathan, you, if you've got a plum normal liver, you've got a normal BMI, you can remove potentially up to 70% of somebody's liver and the remaining 30% will undergo a rapid 
process of regeneration. And after six weeks, your liver volume will be back up to the same size as it was before the operation. But if you've got a fatty liver, we then have to leave more and more liver behind. So it, it constrains us significantly if we know that the liver's fatty, that we then have to kind of modify the operation or in some circumstances, we may not be able to carry the operation out because of the level of of steatosis within the liver. It's, it's a similar situation for pancreatic surgery as well. Organs like the liver and the pancreas, as you put on weight, they tend to put on weight with you. So if you've got a high BMI, your pancreas will also be fatty. And that poses as a problem for pancreatic surgery because when we remove various parts of the pancreas, particularly the head part of the pancreas, when we do an operation called the Whipples, if your pancreas is fatty, it is likely that you're you'll run into post-operative complications because the joins we make between your bowel and your pancreas at the end of the operation are more likely to sort of leak and have a greater potential to, for want of a better word, fall apart if your pancreas is more fatty. So it's a real challenge in the liver and pancreatic field operating on patients where the organs are, for you know, want of a better word, fattier. Eloquently stated, thank you. When when I've, I've talked to patients about obesity, I and try to make the point that, yeah, it's not just the fact you can see, it's the fact you can't see and the damage it's doing. It's rather like talking about smoking, especially with young people. They'll get it that, yeah, maybe there's a problem with their breathing, but they're currently still playing football or whatever they're doing and they think it's okay. But then when you point out to them, you know, if you get an anal fistula, it's not going to heal as well in a smoker as it is in a non-smoker. It affects the entire you know, organism. And we, as doctors, I think we need to do a better job getting that message over. So, Ricky, we, you and I share an interest in both minimally invasive and robotic surgery. And I saw that you gave a talk on robotic liver surgery entitled Edge of a Knife, great title, by the way, at a national surgery conference. Where is laparoscopic and robotic liver and pancreatic surgery now? What's in the future? Yeah, it, this is this is a really fast evolving uh, field, Jonathan. So, I mean, at, at the moment, all operations that we do for sort of on the liver and the pancreas, there are well-described methods now, both for open surgery, laparoscopic surgery, robotic surgery. So you can use any of these sort of platforms to, to carry out surgery to the liver or the pancreas. For many operations now, the laparoscopic or minimal access route is the preferred method. So there are there are a number of pancreatic operations particularly when we're removing the left side of the pancreas or we're doing sort of uh, sort of minor liver resections the preferred route for all patients would be minimal access laparoscopic surgery so the um, there is a definite move away from if you can avoid it open operations to minimal access the the robotic revolution in in liver and pancreatic surgeries is gathering quite a pace from the patient's end of the perspective, probably, Jonathan, the, the difference between laparoscopic and robotic is probably, patient really probably wouldn't notice the difference because the operation will be done through the same size incisions on the same part of, of, the, uh, of the organs. The advantage for robot really is for the surgeon. The images that you get through the robotic platform are superior to what you would get with laparoscopic surgery. The ease of operating with the robot is vastly superior is vastly superior to laparoscopic so if you can imagine if you're doing if you're doing a laparoscopic liver section you'll have an assistant holding a camera for you you'll be operating you'll have you have your arms up in the air you'll be you'll be kind of maneuvering yourself you may be doing a six seven hour operation your shoulders will become tired the assistant may be sometimes lose the concentration the camera may slip out of view 
None of these problems are evident with the robotic surgery. You'll be unscrubbed sitting at a robot. You'll be relaxed. You may even have a cup of tea on the side that you can sip. You'll be operating, pretty much controlling the whole system yourself. So whilst you're doing the operation, the comfort level that you have, the image that you have is just vastly superior. If you fancy getting up and having a walk and then going back to the console to continue the operation, you can do because the robot will hold the position completely still until you decide to remove or decide to move something. You can zoom the camera in and out yourself. It's a very good platform for teaching because at the Marsden, we've got dual console operating. So you can have an assistant sitting on the console that you can sort of pass the controls to who can do part of the operation while you're watching via the other console. So the advantage for the robot really is for the surgeon from ease of operating, from the view that you get and from the, the ability to teach the operation in a much more sort of sustained, controlled manner. So I think probably looking five, six years uh, forward, Jonathan, I think the robot will become more and more used. The indications will probably become greater and greater as people get build up their experience with the robot but undoubtedly it's much more comfortable and, and much more comfortable for the for the surgeon to operate with the robot than laparoscopic yeah yeah and um i think that's a fair comment so you, you're also involved with the institute of cancer research and national institute for health and care research biomedical center at the royal marsden as a faculty member and co-lead of the upper gastrointestinal uh, surgery oncology research group tell us about this aspect of your work and, and your goals in this position? Yeah, so, um, so as you might be aware, John, the, the uh, Institute for Cancer Research and the Royal Marsden, they, this, they, they're a, a partnership and many many of my colleagues um, also sort of work, work between the two institutes. So I'm co-lead with, uh, with my surgical colleague, Mr. Kumar, and the goal of, our, of, of the group is, uh, very simply, is to, is to improve the outcomes for patients with liver, uh, pancreatic esophageal gastric cancer and the whole group is dedicated to finding newer ways of being able to diagnose these cancers trying to push for earlier diagnosis better ways of managing the treat of managing patients with these cancers some of the work we've done uh jonathan this is interesting just sort of last week we had a we had a um a paper published where we've looked at our way of managing patients with uh, something termed borderline resectable pancreatic cancer. So these are patients where the tumour is potentially involving some of the major blood vessels in the abdomen. Some, most of our patients at the Royal Marsden would receive quite strong chemotherapy and then radiotherapy before, before an operation. And we found in our cohort of patients who've received fulfurinox chemotherapy and then radiotherapy and then being operated on, their long-term survival is actually very good so we we're seeing patients making it up to four and in some instances five years after cancer diagnosis pancreatic cancer diagnosis who are making it to four years of survival which on the background of most patients developing disease response within about two years is it's a it's a good sign and it's potentially showing us that there are newer ways and newer ways to potentially treat these diseases so we've kind of followed this on and we're doing we're now carrying out um, a study where we're looking at pre-operative scans to see whether we can predict which patients would benefit from this approach. So the standard, the standard approach up and down the country would be if you're diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, you would have surgery and then have chemotherapy afterwards. 
but we're trying to see if we can work out the cohort of patients where that may not be the best approach and maybe there are a cohort of patients where giving them chemotherapy and radiotherapy before the operation is ultimately going to deliver a better outcome for them both in terms of being free of the cancer and having longer term survival so it's exciting and we're doing this for a number of cancers, including esophageal cancer as well. I think this area will continue to sort of grow and mushroom and hopefully we can get to a stage where we can continue to you know, build on these uh, on these early successes. So what future areas of research into liver and pancreatic disease most excite you? Screening for early pancreatic liver or bile duct cancers, surgical techniques, prevention, dare I say? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting area, John. I mean, there's, there's there's so much that needs to be answered with these uh, with these cancers. I mean, g- generally, cancers of the kind of upper gastrointestinal tract still carry a bad prognosis, and I think, as you as you say, a lot of this is down to us not being able to diagnose the disease early enough. I mean, we know that if we diagnose pancreatic cancer earlier, we know if we d- diagnose liver cancer earlier, we're going to be much more successful at being able to treat it. Uh, we're going to be much more successful in carrying out operations that deliver longer-term cure. So undoubtedly, the, the, one, of the, one of the holy grails is early, early detection. There's a lot of work up and running globally in these areas. And Will we get to a st- will we get to a position where we can diagnose them with a biomarker, something in the blood, something in the urine, where it will give us an indication that there may be something growing? That's an area that really needs ongoing research, and I hope that we can get we can get to a position where we can get that. But that, that you know, there's a lot of work going on at the ICR with that. There's a lot of work going on up and down the country with that. I think that what I alluded to earlier about the sort of the, the changes in treatment in terms of neoadjuvant treatments for particularly things like pancreatic cancer, that's going to be interesting. So is changing the paradigm and moving away from chemotherapy after surgery to before surgery? There definitely seems to be some merit in that. And I think we'll see that there'll be a there will be a move to delivering these treatments before surgery in the hope that we can quantify the biology of the disease better and that we can pick the patients who need who will ultimately benefit from surgery better using the technique i think that's that's an exciting area obviously chemotherapy will continue to change so the chemotherapy we're using now to treat these diseases is changing and it's very different to the one we would have been using five six years ago so we always have a number of trials up and running between the mars and the icr without doubt the chemotherapy that we'll be using in five years time will be very different to the treatment we're using now we're beginning to use immunotherapy a lot more in um in our patients and that's probably going to be another area that, that takes off both for liver and pancreatic cancer obviously as we discussed the robot platform will continue to increase and it'll be interesting to see whether we're, we're going to be able to get to the stage where the more complex operations we do on the liver and the pancreas currently through open operations can we translate those through to robotic operations It'll, it'll be interesting. I think the other area, probably, Jonathan, that's, again, come on more in the last three, four years is treatment of what's termed oligometastatic disease. So, for instance, if, if you had a pancreatic cancer operation three years ago and you develop a metastasis within the liver, maybe four or five years ago, that would have been considered as being recurrent disease that is now only eligible for palliative treatment. But we are now getting to the stage where we're recognising that some patients will de- derive benefit from having 
even tumors that were that have spread from pancreatic cancer and we are operating on these patients now so it's a very it's a very selected group of patients but we are seeing an increasing number of patients where we feel that these are sensible rational decisions for these patients and may ultimately deliver them ongoing survival and ongoing quality of life so I think this is another area that will continue to increase over the next five, six years. And it, it is exciting because these are these are patients that would not have been considered for surgery even up until two, three years ago, who are now. So lots of areas that are changing, lots of areas where the paradigm is changing for treatment, but it's an exciting time to be involved in them. So looking back for when I trained, I a lot of time was spent on operations we no longer do, such as uh, in my space for peptic ulcer. And operations we now do with frequency didn't exist. Diagnostic and therapeutic armamentaria have expanded exponentially and our world as surgeons has changed dramatically. So what advice would you give to young people contemplating a medical career or to medical students who are considering becoming a surgeon? Ultimately, it's a, it is a fantastic, surgery is a fantastic and rewarding, uh, rewarding career. I think any surgeon from any specialty, you always feel you've made a you've made a real difference to to patients and you've helped them recover from something or you've helped treat something so it's a fantastic career but it is a long road i think uh, anybody particularly who's considering to going into a specialty like hepatobiliary surgery or liver transplant it's a long long road and you'll you'll be dedicating a long a lot of your time a lot of your energy into learning a complex uh, surgical specialty you may have to train in a number of in, in a number of institutions in in different parts of the country. You you may have to travel to various parts of the world to to learn the newest techniques, to learn the newest uh, modes of treatment. The one thing I'd always encourage everybody is to engage in research. I think I think in being engaged in any form of research does does change your mindset. It changes your approach. It changes your outlook. As to how you view things most importantly it allows you to keep your finger on the pulse i think probably most importantly you've got to be prepared for ups and downs it's a it's a career that will show that you you'll be happy when things go well but there's not an insignificant period of time where things won't go well it's a process in which you, you have to be able to mentally physically deal with sort of long hours and things when things don't go right for patients having this sort of the the, the mental strength to kind of um, overcome those and and then sort of get back to the operating table and do your best for the next patient when things may have not have quite not, not may not have gone well for the patient before. But ultimately, I can, having been through it myself, I definitely recommend it. I think it's a great a great career and on so many levels. And if I had the chance, I'd do it all again. Uh, you can't say better than that, right? And I always finish these podcasts with the um, the statement "Stay curious," and that's the wonderful thing about research. It's the opportunity to ask questions that you're curious about and find the answer and the, the delight of seeing that you may shape clinical practice and thereby help patients all around the world is immensely satisfying. So changing tracks slightly, earlier this year, you participated in a Channel 4 documentary called Super Surgeons. Tell us about that experience. How did it feel to see yourself on TV? What did your family, friends and colleagues make of it? Uh, it was it was really odd, actually, uh, Jonathan, to see myself. Uh, the only time I've seen myself before that was on my, wedding, my wedding video. I didn't realize some of my mannerisms because there's some things I did on screen where I thought, do I really do that? It was really interesting. I think from a from a 
purely surgical perspective, it was it was really interesting seeing the patients when they were coming into hospital. It's not something you really tend. I mean, it's not something I really paid all that much attention to beforehand because you see the you see the patient on the day of the operation, you see them in clinic beforehand, you see them afterwards when they're recovering. I didn't really appreciate how much anxiety the patients had. I mean, particularly both both ladies we operated on in the series. I mean, they, they were they were on the edge of tears or crying on their way in. Those weren't really tangible to me before before the series. So that was, it was quite enlightening for me seeing that. I mean, as you know, we were often watched in theatre by students, by other other members of the, of, the, of the surgical anaesthetic and nursing team. But it was quite odd having the camera over your shoulder or having the camera hooked up to your head while you're doing the operation. That was, that was, a, that was, a, that was a little bit odd. But overall, the actual process, I really, really enjoyed it. I was a bit nervous to begin with. But actually, as we went through the process, it was actually it was really it was really uh, it was really nice. I, I, I don't often talk about work at home. My parents, with my family, uh, or my brothers, so they found it. Re- they were they were quite bowled over by it, actually quite amazed what I do at work because I don't th- I think even though they've seen me train through that, I don't think they kind of kind of appreciated what I, what I actually do at work. So they they were. Uh, they were quite surprised, and I think I think my, my parents were quite proud when they saw when they saw me on the on the screen. My kids found it really odd. They were looking at me, and they, they didn't quite kind of. I don't think quite tallied up in their head that, particularly my youngest son, I don't think he quite tallied up that it was me on the TV. But they were overall. I think everybody was. Uh, they were they were really pleased, and I think they were really proud of me. Yeah, well, uh, wonderful. It's. It, I remember I was on TV once, and my kids were very very young. And the show came on. It was a talk show. And they were very confused. I mean, they were teeny tiny. And they're looking and they were trying to work out how I was in two places at once, which was hysterical. Finally, Ricky, I love to ask all my guests this. If you had three wishes that could be granted by a genie that would advance healthcare within the field of hepatopancreatic obiliary surgery, what would they be? I wish I had 10 wishes rather than three, but if I had three, I would say... One, undoubtedly, Jonathan, would be an early marker for pancreatic cancer. That would change our field and the outcome for patients immeasurably. So if we can find that, that would be that would be amazing. I think, secondly, what would help us as surgeons is if we could find, when we, when we do Whipple's operation, each surgeon's almost got his, his, his or her own way of doing a pancreatic anastomosis or a joint between the pancreas and the bowel. It would be really good if we could work out which is the best way of doing it. That, again, would help us with treating our patients and with timely recoveries from pancreatic surgery. I think the third one probably would be if we, could, if we can develop a better technique of localising lesions within the liver, that would help us with much more targeted liver surgery, which, again, would help us potentially be less aggressive with liver surgery but still carry out oncologically sound operations and that would ultimately improve the outcome for our patients so if i had to pick three probably those are three i'd pick i hope they come to to fruition Uh, sadly that's all we've got time for for this episode of the emj podcast and i want to thank mr ricky bogal for taking the time to talk with us today for sharing his insights into what's really thus far an incredible career and he's only just got started and for everything he's doing for patients and forgive me for saying this, Ricky, but I rather hope Manchester United continue to be wobbly until at least my Spurs play them. So, Ricky, thank you. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. It's a real pleasure talking to you today. And uh, I can only keep my fingers crossed that United get back to the top of the table.
Yeah, well, um, I think your three wishes have got more hope of happening, at least, <laughs> at least in the near future. So, folks, please, if you've enjoyed this episode, and I hope you have, I certainly have, please like us on social media. Tell your friends to listen in and join us next week, where I'll be back with another compelling episode, uh, exploring another fascinating aspect of medicine, a career, a profession that we're very, very privileged to have. Until then, thanks for listening uh, to the EMJ podcast. And this is your host, Jonathan Sakia, hoping you stay safe, stay well. And as I said before, stay curious. Bye for now. <laughs>